Programming note. This is the last of the series of the war off North Carolina's coast. It has been a joy and gut-wrenching experience to learn that so much has taken place off of a coast that I visited at least a dozen times. A place I go and take my family to relax, unwind, be silly. And when we're there, there are no rules, no bedtimes, no diets, no expectations. As carefree as I'll ever be. And that silliness of mine, which hundreds of thousands of Americans duplicate every summer, is only possible because many of the people in these stories sacrificed everything, and their families, almost everything. I am, and will always be, eternally grateful. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 187, Goodbye! Last time, the glory days of Torpedo Junction, as the German U-boats called the area just off North Carolina, were over. Not that the Americans knew this, or would know it, for some time. Also, that this was the beginning of the Allies eventually winning the war, as supplies now had a better chance of making it to America's allies, namely Soviet Russia and Great Britain. And because the Americans did not know that they had just turned a corner, they would go on, sacrificing their young men, and putting up with inconveniences like rationing, blackouts, and travel restrictions. But the story is not over. Not yet. Arnold Tolson is what one might call an old soul. Yes, he joined the Coast Guard at age 17, but two years later, in 1942, he had shown himself to be poised and competent enough to be promoted to Chief Petty Officer, the highest enlisted grade for the U.S. Navy or Coast Guard at the time. By early 1942, Tolson was in charge of an 83-foot patrol boat working the waters off North Carolina. By May 13th, the vessel's engines clearly needed some work. So, he put in at the Ocracoke Coast Guard Station. Taking advantage of this, the commander of the station, another chief petty officer, asked Tolson to look after the place, as he had to go to the mainland for some much-needed dental work. Tolson agreed and planted himself in the commander's chair. That night, Tolson, and many others, heard an explosion, but he decided the next morning to check out the beaches nearby to see if anything washed ashore to explain the blast. It didn't take long for Tolson and the man with him to find a body on the sands. This body was put in the back of the station's pickup truck, but as they headed back to the station, a second body was found. This second body joined the first. Reaching the Coast Guard station, Tolson examined the bodies. Fortunately, one of them, the one with the beard, dungarees, and turtleneck, had a checkbook on his person, so identification was easy. The second had no such documents. Thus, until fingerprints could be compared to files, he would remain a mystery. That same day, the regular station chief petty officer returned from the dentist, and he was told of Tolson's discoveries. And so that's when he called in Acock Brown, a civilian agent for U.S. Naval Intelligence. His job, specifically, was to identify corpses and wreckage that had washed ashore, as clearly there was a good chance 
that the Americans, or now British, had just lost another ship. On a side note, Brown did not have a background in this field and had no special training. But as there was a war on, he found himself with this job and was expected to carry it out. We've all been there. For example, the previous month, Brown had to investigate a body that was washed ashore near the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. The corpse before him, Brown knew, was probably an American, but it also might be a Brit or a German. And if it was the latter, what could the body tell him that might help the war effort? Fingerprints told Brown that this person on his table was one Michael Cairns, the fourth engineering officer of the armed British tanker San Delfino. It had been sunk on April 9th near Rodanthe, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers north of Hatteras. Now that Brown knew he was looking at a British seaman who had given his life for the war effort, he would be buried near the Cape Hatteras Coast Guard Station, but Brown wanted to give Cairns a traditional burial with military honors. Yet, as there was a war on, there was no time for a British honor guard, rifle team, or bugler. But what Brown could do was drape the coffin with a British flag, provided he could get his hands on one. His search led him to the Moorhead City shipyard, also in North Carolina, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers southwest of Hatteras. There he came upon the British vessel, the HMT Bedfordshire, which was taking on supplies for its next anti-submarine patrol. The ship's officer on deck was Sub-Lieutenant Thomas Cunningham, a 28-year-old of the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. He listened to Brown's story. But Brown did not ask for a single flag, but rather several of them, and if possible, a few crewmen to represent king and country for the burial. Cunningham was only too happy to give the American four Union Jacks. Unfortunately, that would be it, as the crew was expected to get underway as soon as possible. With that squared away, Cunningham offered Brown a bit of the daily grog, and he then told the American that he just got a letter from his wife. They were expecting their first child. Toasts were made all around, which led to the wicker-wrapped rum jug being empty by the time Brown left. But upon departing, Brown asked for, and was given, the empty container, which would be passed down to his son. Now, flash forward six weeks, back to Tolson calling in Brown to investigate the two bodies washed up on the beach. The man from Navy Intelligence, who had learned on the job, was taken to a shack that had once been the life-saving station. As Brown watched, Tolson unwrapped the tarpaulin around the bodies. As Tolson continued to unwrap, Brown bent down to get his kit ready. When he looked up and he saw the bodies, he almost slumped to his knees. Brown told Tolson, I know where this man is from, the HMT Bedfordshire. He is Sub-Lieutenant Tom Cunningham. This Tolson already knew from Cunningham's checkbook that he found on the body but he had not known that he was from the Bedfordshire. The fingerprints of the second man confirmed that he was also a crewman of the armed trawler, ordinary telegraphist Stanley Craig. Straight away, Brown called 5th Naval District Headquarters and told them what had happened and that the Bedfordshire was lost. 
The U.S. Navy could not confirm this, but after reaching out to the British liaison officer in Norfolk, Virginia, it was confirmed that no one had heard from the Bedfordshire in the last few days. Inquiries were made, but no one had any information on when the armed trawler was lost, or where, or who had done the deed. Not until the war was over and the victorious Allies got access to the Kriegsmarine and the U-Boat Waffe records could they confirm that U-558 had been the only U-boat in the area around Cape Lookout at the time. It was commanded by Captain Lieutenant Gunther Kretsch. The records went on to say that U-558 had come upon the unsuspecting Bedfordshire, which was heading south, near Cape Lookout, when a single torpedo sank the trawler at 11.40 p.m. German time, about 17 miles south of Cape Lookout. It was the only success U-558 had off the American coast. Brown and Tolson took on the responsibility of burying the bodies. Asking around, a family by the name of Williams, on Ocracoke, offered up a spot just outside their large brick-walled cemetery. As lumber was in short supply, Tolson got a local to give him two of his floating duck blinds, or battery boxes. These were used by hunters to lie in, in shallow waters, and wait for game to come by. Next, Tolson got together a few sailors, and then they went to the Williams' property to dig the two graves. During all this, Brown searched for, but could not find, the only minister on the island, Reverend W.R. Dixon. So, a church lay leader, Amasa Fulker, stepped in. The bodies were prepared, wrapped in blankets, and placed in the watertight battery boxes. Then, carried in the same truck that had brought them from the shore to their final resting place. Mac Womack and Theodore Mutro were two of the pallbearers. As the lay leader carried on with the brief service, Brown stepped back to take a few pictures. He thought about the friend he had just made, and now lost, of the young woman in England and the coming child that would never see Cunningham again, and lastly, that one of the extra flags that Cunningham had given him was now draped over his own coffin. In time, Thomas Cunningham's widow, Barbara, was told of her husband's death and burial. Her response was to write a letter to the appropriate authorities asking if her husband, a practicing Roman Catholic, had been buried in accordance with the church's rites of burial. She was told, no, that had not happened, but time permitting, a proper memorial service would take place, which it did that December 27th. By this time, there were two more people buried there, for Tolson and his crew had found two more bodies near Ocracoke once they made the needed repairs to their engines. Unfortunately, these two bodies, found later, were badly decomposed and carried no identification. Thus, their graves were unmarked, except for being assumed to be a part of the crew of the Bedfordshire. With the ceremony over, of which Brown was able to attend, the servicemen and locals then walked away, those in uniform back to the war, and those not, back to their daily routines. But the locals did not forget 
they would not let these four men fade from memory, especially as the widow Cunningham became pen pals with Pearl Folker, the wife of the church lay leader. And through Pearl, the whole of Ocracoke kept up with the progress and growth of Thomas Cunningham, Jr. Soon a white fence was placed around the four graves, and the locals kept the gravesite tidy. Nor did the Royal Navy forget its men. In 1969, a group of Royal Navy sailors unofficially showed up and cleaned up the place. Further, they installed a flagpole to fly a British flag over the cemetery. Matching this respect, every day for the next few years, U.S. Coast Guard crewmen came to the site to raise and lower that flag at sunrise and sunset. Sadly, in 1974, the Coast Guard crew arrived but found that the flag had been stolen. The British Embassy in D.C. was contacted, and by mid-July, a response came back that said, the Ocracoke commander should expect a helicopter from the frigate HMS Mohawk, or the Mighty Mo. When the helicopter arrived, Captain Barry Wilson of the Mighty Mo arrived with several crewmen. Later that month, a joint military memorial ceremony was held, with the U.S. Navy, British Royal Navy, and U.S. Coast Guard attending, along with the Ocracoke locals. Inspired by the sacrifice of the men of the Bedfordshire, the Ocracoke Preservation Society, the Graveyard of the Atlantic Museum, and the U.S. Coast Guard groups, Cape Hatteras pushed to have an annual memorial event, which became a reality starting in 1976, when the property of the gravesite was turned over to the state of North Carolina, which then leased the cemetery in perpetuity to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Each Friday, nearest the anniversary of May 11th, the event is held. I hope to attend next year, 2022. Decades later, in 1980, divers would stumble upon the remains of the Bedfordshire. As its debris was scattered far and wide, the explosion from the single torpedo must have been stupendous, killing the entire crew instantly. During the 2005 memorial, with Antonin Dvorak's Night Symphony Largo melody going home, playing in the background, the ceremony got underway on a patch of ground now known as a corner of a foreign field that is forever England. The speaker was a 62-year-old retired commander in the Royal Naval Reserve, just like Thomas Cunningham had been, and he used a part of a Lawrence Binion poem for the fallen in his speech. Quote, they shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. And the poem ends, As the stars that shall be bright when we are dust, moving in marches upon the heavenly plain, as the stars that are starry in the time of our darkness, to the end, to the end, they remain. The speaker was Thomas Cunningham, Jr., the man whose father died even before he was born. Postscript. The 162-foot Bedfordshire was one of the 24 submarine chasers 
sent by Churchill to help out the struggling Americans in March of 1942. The Bedfordshire was the last to arrive off the American coast, but soon she was helping in any capacity needed, chasing down mysterious contacts, responding to distress calls, and ferrying divers to the doomed U-85 off Nags Head. The 24 converted fishing trawlers were lovingly known as Harry Tate's Navy. Harry Tate was a famous music hall performer, and during his show, everything would go wrong, much to the enjoyment of the audience. Tate's catchphrase, Goodbye, inspired a famous World War I song and was the title of the last episode of Black Adder, Season 4, where all of the main characters die in a big push of World War I. On May 11, 1942, the HMT Bedfordshire and HMT St. Loman were sent out from Moorhead City to search for an enemy U-boat that was supposedly operating near Ocracoke Island. As there was a sub in the vicinity, U-558, she spotted the two converted trawlers first. The Loman then detected the sub, which forced Captain Gunther Kretsch to fire a torpedo its way. The St. Loman dodged the deadly fish. But at 5.40 a.m. on May 12th, local time, U-558 came upon the Bedfordshire, unnoticed. Captain Kresh would not take a chance this time and immediately fired off a single torpedo, which scored a direct hit. The trawler was out of sight within minutes. But in war, there are few left unscathed. Just 14 months later, two Allied anti-submarine aircraft harassed and targeted U-558 just off the northwest coast of Spain. One of their depth charges finished off the submarine. Yet Captain Kresh survived with four others of his crew. Gunther Kresh was a POW for the rest of the war and then released. He died in the year 2000, age 85. Let's go.